But then I sort of let this thing go, these things go, until recently um, I discovered that they're coming back at, at big time, uh, partly because there's a, you know, there's a huge surgence of despair and suicide and drug addiction and depression. And uh, I see the same language. Oh, treat, it's treatment resistant. So we, we have to treat it. And now they're going with a modern, uh, you know, methods of, of uh, inserting electrodes into the, into the brain. And surgeons are claiming to, uh, to make people uh, doing, by brain stimulation, less depressed. They're also doing brain surgery as well. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy, and this is the Locked Up Living podcast, where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. So today we're talking with uh, Peter Sterling. Peter is an American physiologist and neuroscientist and professor of neuroscience at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. In his long career, he has made major and varied contributions to scientific knowledge. And you'll see more about this together with some links in the show notes. He's also been a social activist throughout his life. And we'll touch upon that before talking about his recent work, a recent paper called Causality and Mental Disturbance, a review of the neuroscience. Hi, Peter. Hi, pleased to meet you. Pleased to be here. Hi, Peter. Thanks very much for joining us. And that sounds like quite a, a quite an involved career. Nice to hear about someone merging their academic stuff with actually real life world at the same time. But perhaps we could begin with you telling us a little bit about your career and how you how you've done this. Well. I was raised in uh, in the suburbs north of New York City uh, right after World War II when it was still country and I was interested in insects and snakes and frogs and stuff. And I, uh, I got training as a biologist. I went to Cornell University in the um, <clears throat> early 60s, late 50s and early 60s, and studied uh, and was interested in neuroscience, studied biology. <clears throat> But it was also a period of uh, social uh, upheaval, the beginning of the civil rights movement in the U.S., and I was active in that at, at, at Cornell. And then uh, in, uh, <clears throat> in May 1961, there were the, uh, the Freedom Rides, which many people today won't remember, but it was a period where um, uh, there was a movement to, to integrate um, interstate travel so that black people and white people could travel together and use the same bathroom and lunch counter and so on. And, uh, uh, the, the, the first bus of integrated, uh, travelers was, uh, attacked in Alabama and burned and people were beaten. And the, the organizers of the movement, uh, called on, on students from all over the country to converge on Mississippi, on Jackson, Mississippi, and filled the jails in order to basically embarrass uh, President Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, and, and, and Robert Kennedy, as 
uh, attorney general to uh, to just simply uh, force the the uh, the integration uh, of the fed interstate travel. And so I I participated in that. I was arrested in a big um, sort of a a core event in my life. And I I went on to graduate school in Cleveland, Ohio, in the early 60s. And that was, again, a segregated community. Uh, Blacks were forced into the central ghetto, uh, where they still are, actually. And uh, I worked in in that community with a group called CORE, Congress on Racial Equality. And I would slip away from my, I was working, studying neuroanatomy of the, of the uh, cortical projections to the uh, brainstem and spinal cord. And I would slip away from my microscope and work in this community. And I saw that uh, many uh, people who I, when I knocked on their door, uh, were, were paralyzed, partially paralyzed. Their face would be sagging, their speech would be slurred. And when I came back to the lab, I discovered, oh yeah, this is uh, this is uh, a stroke, uh, hemiplegia caused by hypertension. And so I was wondering, well, wh- why have I not seen this in my community? And then I realized, you know, my grandfather had actually uh, been in that. It was a Jewish community before it was a black community. I mean, it was a Jewish ghetto, and he also had been segregated there and. Uh, and he had had an early stroke and himself hypertension. And I began to see a connection between social tension and hypertension. But at that time, the uh, American medicine was really quite in denial. They, they said, no, hypertension is caused by the kidney. It's caused by eating too much salt. And to some extent, it still says that. But it's pretty obvious now that... Uh, there are many connections from the brain to all the internal organs that raise blood pressure and, and that uh, people who live under conditions of, of social tension and, and so on uh, suffer this uh, crippling disorder at very high rates. So I, I began to, uh, I, my main laboratory work really had nothing to do with this. It went on, I went, I went on to study the visual system um, parts of the cerebral cortex concerned with vision, uh, a great deal of studying the retina, which is a, which is a piece of the brain that actually grows out into the eye to process visual signals. But at the same time, I was always slipping away to the library to, to learn more about these connections and, um, uh, began to build up a, a, an understanding of this. And I also, in my 30s when I went to ended I, I did a postdoc at Harvard Medical School for three years and then I took this job at University of Pennsylvania where I was there for 40 years. I also became interested in how other people live and and I, I discovered that uh, uh, people who live as hunter gatherers the way we evolved um, actually don't have hypertension. Their blood pressure doesn't rise with age. And oh, so I became interested in, well, what it is it about their lives that protects them in, in these ways? And I began uh, visiting them in uh, Central America. I visited various indigenous groups. And, uh, and now I live in this 
a rural community in 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 western Panama in the mountains, uh, which is shared by indigenous people and local uh, campesinos, landowning campesinos. And so there was a sort of a, a lifelong braiding of my my scientific background and and uh, and this activism. Really hear that, and I, you know, I just think it sounds so progressive. I mean, these days, I think people are getting much better at thinking about how um, stress and our mind and our body have a uh, have an interwoven relationship. So how we're doing at an emotional level impacts on our physical health. But actually, it sounds like at the time where you first started out in your career, that was very progressive and innovative to be thinking in that yeah, way. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was quite. It was radical, actually. And yeah. uh, when I tried to teach teach this in the medical school, uh, people really weren't interested. Uh, um, uh, some people, yeah, it didn't it didn't go over very well. But I must say, there's still a great resistance. the The curriculum in medical schools in in, in the U.S. Um, basically teaches medical students that the body gets these diseases. And they're quite divorced from the brain, and even 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 disorders, disturbances, which are obviously connected to the brain, such as obesity and and alcohol and drug addictions and depression, they're all taught these are these are diseases, something that you have. You have obesity, it's a disease. You have depression, it's a disease. Uh, I think this is completely wrong. Um, these are disturbances of our normal uh, physiology and behavior but they're not diseases they're 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 disturbances that are caused by the 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 really uh frightening way that that we're, we're living now and i'm coming to understand and to write more about uh, the the fact that we evolved as a species only 200,000 years ago and um, so we lived in a cooperative way, a highly social way, uh, taking care of each other. Um, we we lived because if you if you live if you haven't got a supermarket to go to, you have to share, <laughs> and, and and somebody finds something to eat and they share it with others, and somebody else finds something the next day, and so on. And we've moved so far from this cooperative, supportive lifestyle into one where, you know, a handful of men own almost everything on earth, you know, and um, it's basically, uh, I think, crushing everybody. And there's somehow an assumption that um, humans are so adaptable, we can adapt to anything. And we can adapt to quite a lot for a, lo for a long period of time. But when things get too bad, People, people just go crazy and they despair. And I think that's what we're looking at today is just an immense level of, of despair. And so that's what I'm trying to write about these days. But yeah, I mean, I think you're totally right. The world seems to be a bit crazy at the moment, doesn't it? But actually, in, in terms of your characterization of that, with being a you know, small number of people actually having immense resources and power in the world and a disempowerment of many others. So even if people sometimes feel they've got more, perhaps being a bit deluded into thinking they have more power than they have. But 
just to take you back a little bit, I was um, I was just wondering what it was like for you on a personal level in terms of having this really radical way of thinking and approach. You know, now there's a lot of discussion about people, you know, having conspiracy theories, theories, for instance. You know, if you don't if you don't conform to the mainstream attitude and approach, you know, what was that like for you being involved in research at that time and not subscribing to the mainstream view? Neuroscience was just growing then, and I, I did subscribe to the main core of, of neuroscience methods and approaches and so on. Uh, my social views, uh, I inherited essentially in, in some ways from my parents who were uh, in the 1930s and 40s members of the, uh, the American Communist Party. <laughs> so um, I grew up, you know, on picket lines and going to school to make arguments that, uh, and, and to support candidates, which my classmates never even heard of, you know. Uh, um, so uh, uh, I, I grew up sort of, uh, in some ways it, it was difficult, but in other ways it was sort of something, a matter of pride and, and interest that I could uh, hold these views. And so, and, and my sister as well. So she's also a uh, a, li- a biologist, professional biologist, feminist, and uh, uh, her name is Anne Fausto Sterling, and she's fairly well known in academic yes. circles for her uh, views on gender and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, um, sometimes it's hard, but sometimes it's uh, satisfying too. You know, um, I I think what I most important, I mean. There are many things that I was raised to believe that I, I no longer believe, of course. And, and uh, many of my parents' views, well, they even came to reject. But the core, I think for me, um, the core uh, thought is that as hunter-gatherers, we, we lived uh, from each according to his ability and to each according to his need. And this is a line from Karl Marx, but, uh, and he, he stressed that, but it really is, I think, the core of the way we evolved. And, and that's really uh, what I would like to keep uh, pointing out right now. Yeah. Thank you. In your recently published paper, you gave a bit of a history of mucking about with the brain, as you put it. Can you remind us of the part that psychosurgery has played in psychiatry? Yeah, so in the early 1970s, when I was just starting my laboratory, uh, somebody visited our house and said, did you see the article in the New York Post that they're, they're doing uh, brain surgery on children to treat them for uh, behaviorally, you know, misbehaving, basically? And I, I couldn't believe it, so I went to the library and I looked up all this stuff and I discovered really the 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 beginnings of frontal lobotomy and 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 operating on other parts of the brain such as the amygdala and the cingulate gyrus and so on had begun in the late 1930s um, based on the thinnest of ideas that uh, that a chimpanzee with his frontal lobotomy was less irritable basically and I followed, I spent several years reading this literature and everybody uh, in the this neurosurgeons doing it said, yes, this person had treatment-resistant depression. They were de- deeply depressed. And then I 
then we we destroyed the part of her front, frontal lobe, and and now the the she has normal mother love, and you know, uh, all of the just book after book, paper after paper, and I I convinced myself that this was just uh, terrible, and. Uh, I asked my colleagues if they were aware that it was still going on. They said, no, I didn't, didn't know. But at, at my university, they were still doing it. And I debated, actually, the chair of neurosurgery um, at the time uh, publicly uh, to discuss this uh, thing. And he defended it. So I, I continued to follow this for the next 10 years or so until I thought it, it pretty much died out, and I wrote a summary paper in 1978 describing it. I also was concerned with electroconvulsive therapy, which I think is you know, very, very damaging to the brain. And I've testified about that for many years. But then I sort of let this thing go, these things go, until recently um, I've discovered that they're coming back at, at big time, uh, partly because there's a you know, there's a huge surgence of despair and suicide and drug addiction and depression. And uh, I see the same language. Oh, treat it's treatment resistant. So we, we have to treat it. And now they're going with a modern, uh, you know, methods of, of uh, inserting electrodes into the, into the brain and they, and, and surgeons are claiming, um, to uh, to make people uh, doing by brain stimulation less depressed, they're also doing brain surgery as well, and uh, and it's the same story. I mean, <laughs> so we will come. We do will yeah. come to that a, a little bit later on. But as as you were talking, I was reminded of um, going to work in Leeds in the north of England um, around the turn of the century, and they just built a brand new ECT suite. And I'm being horrified and thinking, you know, you kind of thought that sort of thing had had died out. It seemed a bit barbaric. Um, but I wonder how much of this is a consequence of, firstly, I think viewing all in Western medicine, viewing all parts of the body as if they're separate and unrelated to each other. And secondly, viewing all people as if they're all separate and not related you know, when actually, if you look at, there are other theories, aren't there? Um, for instance, drawing on Gaia theory and um, more of the sort of energy therapies where we think about how human beings actually coexist in some kind of interrelated way. Yeah, I, I, that's a little beyond where I go. I I wouldn't deny that there's something there. I don't think about it that much. I'm, I'm more concerned to keep from where my own knowledge is, and that is um, two things, that, that, there's no, uh, that there's no evidence that when somebody's upset for a long time or a short time, that there's anything uh, wrong with their brain. Their thoughts are disturbed, may be disturbed for various reasons, but that doesn't mean that there's something broken in their circuits, and there is no really evidence for that. And when I wrote that article and sent it out, uh, I sent it out to a lot of neuroscientists, uh, and I didn't get anybody to disagree with me. Um, 
So uh, neuroscientists know that we haven't identified anything wrong with the brain. So there's no, there's no uh, rationale for physically intervening, either electrically with ECT, magnetically with transcranial, and or with drugs. Drugs are also a physical intervention. I mean, the, the chemicals of the drugs bind to proteins in the brain and, and so on. So there's no rationale for these things. And it just turns out they don't work. They don't work. So tell us about this uh, more recent uh, development, uh, Peter. The, the electrode placed with great precision into a part of the brain. Yeah, well, it's sort of a joke. Um, you can, you place the electrode with great precision, but where, where are you placing it? You're placing it in a, in a, in a particular place that uh, some neurosurgeon has decided uh, is, is a center which, when stimulated, will cure, cure depression. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with that area that they can detect. Um, and, uh, and there's no reason to think that what's making somebody unhappy is, is going to be uh, treated by that electrical stimulation. And so uh, they, they make these claims on a, on a, fair, on a small number of people. Uh, the people say, oh, yeah, this, this helped me, you know. And, and, and the tests they do are on some, some uh, um, they, uh, they uh, make these claims and, and they use the test on, on these depression rating scales. And nobody even agrees. The people who use the depression rating scales acknowledge that no two of them agree on, on what the issues are. And, and so if they have a 50% reduction on this rating scale for a few weeks, they call that remission, and they go on. And so the precision, the so-called precision, is completely phony. You know? And if you look at the... Uh, and the public... And there's another aspect now. When I began, the industry was small. Uh, there were f the first neuroscience meeting in the early 1970s. There was a few hundred people, and now the neuro annual neuroscience meeting at the U.S. in the U.S. has 35,000 people, and there are 50,000 members. It's a big industry, and the publishing industry, Springer, who publishes all the Nature journals, and Elsevier, who publishes all the other fancy journals, are making money from these articles. And so when somebody publishes, uh, has, a, has a case, they have one patient who responded well to this so-called precision uh, localization electrode, uh, these uh, some nature communication journal publishes it right away as a news item. And they say, well, if this, if this holds up, you know, this will be a really great thing. But of course, in science, you're supposed to do it often enough for long enough till you have, you know it holds up. But these these little short-term communications that are coming, they're just flooding the uh, the market now. Basically, are raising the stock stock prices of the companies who are producing the electrodes, who are producing the drugs, and uh, the authors on these on these communications. Uh, when you when you look at their their uh, their 
conflicts of interest, but you know, they're, they're all, they're all, they are members of companies. They have companies. They're on the boards of you know, consultants for these drug companies and these equipment companies. So there's a, I think a collusion now between, um, neurosurgeons and, and, um, uh, so the, you know, there's a tremendous commercial, uh, collusion between the universities who are sponsoring these things, for example, the broad Institute at Harvard and, and, and MIT are, are making money on this. So I, I think it's, um, so Peter, are you saying that there's a difference between what you describe as short news items and peer reviewed articles or, or are they all a bit faulty? Well, uh, first of all, they shouldn't be publishing case reports in these short ways. And I don't, I don't know whether those are peer reviewed or not, but they're probably not seriously, but peer review, you know, if you send it to the right, you sent it, if you send an article to the journal of, uh, electroconvulsive therapy, you're going to find people who are, you know, sympathetic with that. There's, there's now there's journals of of brain stimulation and stuff like that. So peer review, everybody has swallowed the Kool-Aid, you know, they all believe this. They all believe the idea that you, uh, obesity is something you have. And so these drugs are natural things to have. Uh, depression is something you have inside you. And, uh, and they don't ask. I mean, for example, um, the, uh, one of these short communications uh, was published a few months ago by uh, a group at the uh, University of California, San Francisco. And they said, this is one patient. Uh, the patient was um, treatment-resistant depression, had been depressed since, since childhood. They don't say one word about what she was depressed about, but they went on and, and, and implanted this electrode. I wrote the first author of the, of the paper that as is common, I mean, you, you know, in science, you do have correspondence. And I said, you know, you don't mention what happened to this child that might've caused her depression. Is it, do you know anything about the, uh, the, uh, the psychological and social history of the child? Well, no, there was no answer. You know, hey. Of course. And, and yet, if you look, there's a really important, fundamental, long-term study uh, in, in Dunedin, uh, New Zealand. It's a 40-odd-year study, a longitudinal study, of a 1,000 people who were followed from, essentially from birth until their mid-40s, and, and uh, examined psychologically at nine times across this period. And what they find is that by age 15, half of the population has had some diagnosable mental disturbance. And by age 45, 85% of the population has suffered some, some mental disturbance. And much of it is associated with childhood uh, abuse and, 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 and childhood problems. But this doesn't enter into any of this uh, brain treatment stuff. 
And moreover, one of the interesting things is that the the diagnosis of schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, um, uh, ADHD, um, all are considered again separate diseases, separate uh, mechanisms. But what this this uh, longitudinal study finds is that um, the people who who suffer one of these uh, disturbances early almost invariably goes on to suffer another one later and is still another one. And most most of the people suffer uh, at least two and possibly all three of these categories of disturbance. So uh, this suggests that these are all part of the same sort of problem. And this fits with the current best molecular studies now the genome, so-called genome-wide studies, it's called GWAS, uh, where they, they study a, mil- a million patients and they ask what genes are associated with these various diagnoses. And what they found is um, they expected to find, you know, we'll find a gene for schizophrenia, we'll find a gene or two for bipolar disorder and so on. But that's not what they found. They found for each of these categories, hundreds of genes so it's like a trait of, of like height. Your, your height is determined by hundreds of genes. Moreover, the genes associated with each one of these categories were the same. It's the same pool. So the, the current best molecular science really fits with these longitudinal studies showing that people, people become disturbed and uh, be- and probably share some. It's probably because of some trait that that uh, has an important role in our behavior. But um, but can if you're out on the spectrum a little bit, you know, you can become impaired. Yeah, hey, Naomi, were you going to say something for a moment ago? Well, it was so much there. I think in what you're mm-hmm. talking about, Peter. You know, I had a few thoughts. What do you, I suppose? very strong reaction feeling quite sad actually when you think about what we might do to children and and later adults because of a misunderstanding of what's going on for people and a tendency to to um to assume there's something faulty when there might actually be a natural response to adversity um in childhood it's also really very struck by the um the money links within um, the relationships that you were talking about when you first started talking about the, you know, the vested interests that people might have when they're reviewing these these articles, and it was also reminding me of the fact that isn't the FDA funded by um, big farmers money again, which kind of like shows that these relationships are not objective relationships. There's always money at the centre of them and actually we're then trusting the health of individuals to organisations that might possibly, well, possibly is probably not the right word, but might be very corrupt um, in terms of if there's a financial interest, people don't always act in the morally um, best way, do they? Well, I, I'd say that's an understatement, yeah. Mm. <laughs> well put, but un- I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's 
it's mad. I mean, the FDA, you know, the other thing is that there's this, uh, as I've been writing the last couple of years, I, I ran across this really amazing journalist, Robert Whitaker. I don't know if you followed him, but, um, he's written two books on, uh, three books on basically one is called mad in America and, and several books, other books about the corruption of psychiatry. And he has a weekly journal that comes out an E line called, uh, mad in America. And he's been willing to publish my material and, um, and to provide a resource for people who are trying to figure out other ways to live besides uh, on, on these drugs. He recently published a, a, a critique of the, of the FDA, of the, uh, the NIH studies, uh, of uh, long-term studies of, of uh, antidepressants, and just shows that they're just phony. They're just phony. They fake, they delete, and he's called, he's got a petition out, which I signed to, uh, to call on the American Journal of Psychiatry to withdraw the original paper because the data was just talking about mucking about. I mean, it was just, uh, really manipulated. And so, so the FDA, uh, the FDA trials that are designed by the drug companies and run by the drug companies are just phony, you know, and, and they're all short-term things. Whereas the long, and, and, you know, this huge number of uh, these uh, antidepressant drugs, which are very difficult to get off. Um, and uh, it's really messing people up. I'm also reminded of two other books I've read this year. One um, is Chris Palmer's book on the argument that all mental disorder is a kind of like metabolic disorder as a consequence of eating things that aren't right for us. And then also the book Ultra Processed People, where which talks about the impact of eating food that essentially isn't really food because it's just chemicals. Sure. And um, and again, I suppose, so, so it's not just the pharmacological industry, is it? It's also potentially the impact of the food industry interwoven with the, with the pharma industry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course that, you know, um, uh, there's a woman named Marion Nessel, who's an American authority on, on fake food. And, uh, she, she defines, um, uh, industrialized processed food as, as any, any food you can't make in your kitchen. <laughs> And, uh, you know, that is, of course, driving part of what's feeding obesity and, uh, and type two diabetes and so on. And they all, they all go together, you know, but I, I think the, the, maybe the most important thing is, is childhood. Uh, children are just, uh, just being brutalized. And part of it is because as a species, we required not even two, uh, you know, a dual parent family. We required, you know, um, a three generation family to raise children and, and, and a village on top of it. And if you try to raise 40% of, of children now in the U S are in single parent households and it's not, it's not doable, you know, uh, it's just so much. Uh, neglect and abuse and, and, and so on. So 
we're raising these generations of really, uh, really messed up, disturbed people. So, Peter, moving on slightly, can you tell us a bit about the DBS, deep brain stimulation? I thought it was a cognitive therapy variant when I saw the initials, first of all. Uh, yeah, well, it's, I mean, I think we've touched on it slightly. This is the idea that uh, you can uh, treat, change somebody's mood for the better by putting an electrode in one part of the brain or the other. And each person has their own, each surgeon has their own favorite little spot. And they, now they claim to uh, rec record the signals and localize it better and better. And so these are just thin wires that are insulated down to the tip and um, implanted and in a, in a semi-permanent way. And, um, when a person feels sad or something, they can press a button and get a little stimulation and feel better. Um, and I mean, this is now becoming a major uh, industry for neurosurgeons, you know, it's, and, and for the equipment companies that make it and, and so on. So it's, it's, uh, yeah. And, and, and they like, when they publish papers, they like to point out that, um, uh, in the U S there's 2.3 million Americans who have treatment, treatment resistant depression. And, uh, and they offer this as an approach. And I mean, just imagine 2.3 million Americans with these wires that coming in out, of, out of their head. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean, George Orwell just didn't even <laughs> imagine, <guys>. you know, <laughs> yeah, that's that's really uh, scary. So this is obviously a device which is um, uh, copyrighted um, um, and costs a fair bit of money, I suppose. Sure, uh, sure. Uh, well, that's, that's uh, yeah. stunning. So where does Dr. Helen Mayberg come into this? Uh, well, she's one of the, uh, she's a, a neuroscientist who, I think she has an MD, uh, who, uh, is part of this idea and that, that she could treat people with this deep brain stimulation. And, um, she was at Emory university for a long time and, uh, she convinced, uh, uh, some equipment companies to sponsor a controlled trial, you know, randomized the blind trial of her patients. Uh, well, no, at various centers uh, across the country and, uh, the trial pretty clearly early on wasn't effective. And so it was canceled. And so uh, people had said, oh, well, you know, she didn't get a fair trial. Uh, the people who still had the electrodes in their brains still improved after the trial was ended and it was open and she was taking care of them. She's apparently a very uh, charismatic, um, caring uh, physician. And now she's now uh, at, uh, at, uh, in New York City at ICANN uh, Medical School. And as I saw a couple of days ago, she's got more, more trials out, more good news, more, you know, don't give up. And she's got a better spot and, uh, and so on. So these things are, people don't, people don't give up. 
uh, there's a lot at stake. And they keep claiming, yeah, and, and I, I call it a, uh, a Ponzi scheme. Uh, you, you know that term. Okay. It's, um, and the thing about a Ponzi scheme is by the time you realize, oh, this one isn't any good, they're on to the next one, you know. And so they keep the publicity good because they're on to this next one, which uh, looks even better. And I, I consider all of this stuff, uh, basically, uh, I, I've looked at so many of these things. There's no, uh, there's no uh, rationale for thinking that there's, A, anything wrong. I mean, she's putting electrodes into the white matter somewhere in the, in the deep in the frontal lobe. There's no rationale for that. Uh, it's just her hunch. Uh, it's, a, it's an area where... In, Emotional information comes and, 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 and along with cognitive information, and it, it's all going somewhere to be integrated. But there's no reason to think that uh, electrical stimulation uh, is going to make you feel better uh, when you have had a terrible childhood, you know. Uh, and so, over the, you know, over my 50 years of experience, is where there's no rationale, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. The brain is too complicated. So, uh, so she's, she's now only one. I mean, she's perhaps the most famous, but there's a group at UCSF uh, in California. There's, there's uh, groups at Stanford. There, there are groups all over that are, that are doing this. And, um, yeah, I, I think it's, a, it's sort of a desperation where, I mean, people cannot face what a mess our country is in. And th I mean, I, I think another part of it is at the other end is people, uh, I've noticed that uh, fertility is falling worldwide. People, it's by fertility, I don't mean biological fertility. I mean, the b decision of women to have children or not. And the, of course, you have to have an average of 2.1 children per woman to keep the population stable. But now in the U.S. it's at about 1.7. I don't know what it is in, in Britain, but it's well below 2.1. In Korea, it's 0.8. In Japan, it's very low. In China, in India, it's below 2.1. So the whole world's um, uh, fertility is falling below replacement. We so what do you make it? What are you making of that, Peter? What I'm making of that is that is this is very strange. Um, we have a bi we're bio we're we're organisms, and biology drives us to want to reproduce. And so when when women who are educated and have a contraception available decide, no, I don't think so. Um, that is a very strange thing that you have to think about. And what I think it is. Uh, this is my hypothesis, uh, which is now under peer review, <laughs> um, for a nature journal, we'll see, uh, what I, what I make of it is that, um, the, the locus of, of human desire for children to reproduce and have a family is not in the individual woman. That's not the drive. It's at some higher level within a family and a, a three-generational family and a community. 
And 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 uh, if if you just have an isolated uh, woman uh, without any support um, and and something interesting to do with her life, uh, this is a this is too big a commitment. I mean, it takes twenty years to raise a kid, and then I still have my middle aged children, you know, which I'm trying to help along, you know. Um, so I think there's there's a I think this falling uh, off of fertility of interest in having families is part of this general despair. I mean, on one hand, people don't want to live, so they're killing themselves and they're drugging themselves and so on. On the other hand, um, it doesn't seem appealing if you're depressed and so on to raise, uh, to raise a child. So I think it's, it's very much related. And I don't think these uh, giving people new drugs, uh, I mean, there are all these new antidepressant drugs that are also being uh, proposed, like esketamine and, and hallucinogens and so on. People are just desperately trying to figure out how to keep people going, but, but they're not facing what the real problem is. Suppose, um, as, you were ta- as you were talking, Peter, uh, it, it made me think that there's a tendency again in society to look at, to narrow down on problems and just view them as an individual level rather than re- recognise how they're represented within society. And I suppose a bit concerned listeners might have heard you talking about single parents earlier, for instance, and thinking you were being judgmental about the individual, when I think from what you're saying, you're talking very much about society having a problem and having created a problem. But yes. the danger is that we just look for the solutions at an individual level, don't we? And we we try and make women have more more children on their, you know, without thinking about what's happening within society to sure to, absolutely yeah. absolutely yeah it's 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 an utter final fragmentation it's it's really was very well described in the first opening paragraphs of of com- the communist manifesto of society just uh, tearing apart the the basic uh, human relationships you know and uh, it's yeah. So it sounds, Peter, like you've really used a kind of um, possibly an under kind of injustice as 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 being a contributory factor in terms of you know taking action to actually address things that you see wrong within society. But it's it could be quite a depressing um, stance to take. How do you cope with um, you know seeing this depression that's there within society? How do you keep yourself healthy and keep your own emotional spirits um out of depression yeah well uh <laughs> uh in a variety of ways i i uh i try to keep active doing what i'm doing uh, writing has become i i spend some time farming and i have a garden here uh, i don't sit at the computer all day and uh uh and i you know i try to exercise i go hiking with my wife and i go birding and, you know, uh, try to get out in nature and, uh, try to make sure I get my 10,000 steps <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, uh, get some decent sleep. I I'm, you know, I'm 83 and, uh, I, my energy is, you know, definitely modulated. So I, I try to, I, I think I can keep thinking as long as I do get some, some rest. And, 
uh, I have, we have, you know, social, social friends and yeah. And, and basically trying to just keep at it, you know. In terms of the thinking and writing, what are we, what's your most recent piece of thinking and writing been? Well, the, the piece that you saw on, uh, which is this critique where I do name names, I name Helen Mayberg, I name the people particularly at, in detail at, at the Broad Institute at Harvard. Um, and uh, uh, so, so that evoked a, another critique of my comments. So I write, you know, defend myself on that. And then uh, I have a piece that I wrote this summer on, on this fertility issue. Yeah. And uh, so I try to keep those things going. I have a book review I'm about to write on for a good journal, current biology, very good journal on, uh, on uh, a new book on uh, free will, you know, so I can use that as a vehicle to discuss my, my concerns. Um, and uh, basically, but in, in neuroscience now, a lot of people are saying that um, the really hard problem in neuroscience is consciousness. We have to study this hard problem. But I'm realizing that the, the, uh, the people in neuroscience who decide what's a hard problem, they're all, I think, more, more or less white men out on the this on the autistic spectrum. I mean, they're, they're really not, you know, as opposed to being empathic. And I think it's time for your science to stop allowing those sorts of people to define what's a hard problem. The hard problem right now is an existential problem with people are species not wanting to live and not wanting to give birth and not being able to get along in, in some sort of way. And that's a hard problem because mainly because, you know, 0.001% of the world owns the rest of it. And so, uh, you know, I'm looking for more opportunities to keep saying that. And, uh, <laughs> that's, that's a very interesting question, Peter. And one I hadn't foreseen when we, uh, uh arranged this conversation, but something you haven't mentioned is that you spend a good bit of your time in. Panama, where you met some time ago, our mutual friend, Charles Elton. So yeah. what do you do in Panama? Um, pretty much what I do here. I have a garden. We, we have uh, a small farm, orange farm. Uh, we have, there's a little bit of coffee. There's a little bit of uh, avocados. There's a little bit of ban banana, uh, plantain. Uh, and we have a lot of, you know, native trees uh, and birds and so on. And we try to keep that going. Uh, we have a, <clears throat> an indigenous family that lives on the farm and basically does most of the work. Uh, we sell a few of the oranges. And uh, uh, so that's interesting. But in the community, it's a, it's a community of, uh, there was no electricity in the community when we arrived. And now it's, well, it's the wires have come, the cell phones have come, the buses have come, um, a type two diabetes has come with it. Uh, and, uh, but, but still it's, it's a community where you can walk down the road and there's dogs lying in the middle of the road and they'll get up when the car comes and 
you know, it's it's actually um, there's people there, and it's and we can interact with them, and 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 they say hello to me, and when I go into <laughs> town, they say, "Oh, Senor Sterling, you know, how are you? Where have you been?" You know, I mean, it's at a level of of uh, human interaction, which uh, which we both, my wife and I both enjoy and, and can get involved with. I'm involved with the, uh, building a park there. And, and so I grow, I grow some of the trees to plant in the park, uh, help make raise money for that. Um, my wife helps put on art shows and works, you know, takes the children to the library. And so, so it's a, it's a, it's a sort of more human scale, uh, yeah. Thing. We, we were just in Europe and in, we were in Tuscany and, and Burgundy visiting friends. And I, we were in these small towns. They're beautiful, old, ancient towns. I didn't see anybody but tourists. There's not even any dogs, you know. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, it looks to me like these areas have become totally industrial or agriculture. I was quite disappointed. I expected to go to see a Bruegel you know, uh, uh, <laughs> fields with, you know, you know, haystacks and people harvesting. No, it was all done. It's all big machines have done it and it's gone, you know. I don't know. Well, all the Bruegels are on the wall in Vienna, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Panama sounds lovely. Thanks very much indeed, Peter. Yeah. Thank you. Great. Thanks. Good to, good to meet you all. Yeah, good to talk to you. Sure. Bye-bye.